So 50 years ago, um, on Friday, just gone, a remarkable resident of Oxford died. He, he was an ardent atheist. After a battle, he eventually describes himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He was, of course, the Christian author, the apologist, C.S. Lewis. And in quite an extraordinary way to mark his death this last week on Radio 4, they've been playing an, an abridged version of the Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've read it, they're very good, so I'd recommend them thoroughly. Quite why they chose them, I don't really know. Extraordinary, they are 31 letters written by a senior demon, Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood, as he is advising him and coaching him and mentoring him, seeking to ensure that his, his human subject, his, his patient, as he describes him, is led away from God towards the devil, uh, our father below, as he describes him. But after the second letter from Screwtape, there is bad news, because the, the patient has become a Christian. Ah, says Screwtape, but that's not necessarily bad news because now we have the advantage of distraction. We can dull this new faith rather than tempting him towards big and deplorable sins, extravagant wickedness. Screwtape, he's all about the little things, bit by bit, little decision by little decision, edging people away from God. He says this, he says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So just carefully, in little subtle but cumulative ways, making them selfish, half-hearted, lukewarm, apathetic, lazy, Forgetting the gospel. You see, it's as if in life we're just drifting along. We're fast asleep. We're aimless, unaware. We're slumbering. And we reach Ephesians 6. And God says to you, wake up. The devil is real. This is not a game. This is reality. And it turns it all upside down. Because suddenly you realise the world is not neutral. And you are in a terrible battle. And you have an enemy who wants to make you ineffective. Because, of course, we think we're off to the supermarkets. Or we're just out at a restaurant on the Cowley Road, or we're watching TV, or we're reading a book, or just wandering down Corn Market. But actually, Ephesians 6 says we're in a war. It's extraordinary. It's very dangerous. God says to us, wake up. And so our first point for this morning then, verse 10 to 11, he says, be strong in the Lord, finally... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, if you've just joined us, welcome. 
Um, You've just missed out on five dense chapters where Paul has been outlining God's plan of action for the world, for a broken world. And he says his plan of action is the church. Diverse but reconciled people gathered together around the cross, brought back to life, living under the loving leadership of Jesus. Despite all our weakness, our imperfections, our temper tantrums. Paul says we're a glimpse of what's to come. We're a pointer of where it's all going because one day everything will be under Christ's headship. And he says you have a unity now that is real. Now live it out. Four verse three, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And so when a cynical watching world looks in at the church, they see something of what the gospel achieves. Something of the power and forgiveness that is on offer. They see that God is real. That actually he can change people. And Paul has said it's not just about the lofty philosophical ideas up there somewhere. It's it's about Monday morning. It works at ground level. It means in church you forgive people who annoy you. You love people who are different from you. As we prayed, it means in your marriage, husbands, you lovingly lead. Wives, you graciously submit. It means in families, fathers, you don't exasperate your children. Children, you do obey your parents. It changes how you act in the workplace, how you deal with those over you, but those under you too. And so it's striking that after five chapters of that, Paul then talks about this. Isn't that weird? There's no big fanfare, there's no song and a dance about a big spiritual battle. He's just very matter of fact about it. The devil has schemes, he has battle plans, he has tactics. He wants to draw you away. And so you wonder if rather, like in screw tape, it's just in the ordinary and everyday kind of stuff. The devil loves to turn Ephesians on its head. He loves to make us self-righteously angry with other people and bitter. He loves to create disunity where the cross has brought unity. He loves to bring fractures and cliques and in-crowds and division. He loves to make us hold grudges towards one another, to not submit to one another. He loves for me to be selfish, me-centred. He loves for us to, to love comfort and not to serve other people. He loves for us to gripe and moan and complain about each other, to stand on our rights, to, to not submit. He loves to turn Ephesians the other way up. And so we need to wake up. Actually, we've had a bit of it already. If you've been with us through the last nine weeks, think devil's schemes, think chapter two. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the one whose influence we were under, but not now. The one whose ways we used to follow, but not anymore. 
Or think chapter 4, verse 26, 27. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on you while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And so as we seek to live out the gospel on Monday morning, Paul says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Don't let all that God has achieved unravel in your life. And the key phrase to latch onto in our bit in chapter 6 is stand firm. Standing comes up quite a lot. It's there in verse 13 as well, if you see it. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, that may be a particular day for the Ephesians, that may be a more general day for every generation. But when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. It's not very exciting, is it? Standing. Standing feels kind of mundane and a bit mediocre, like we're just sort of hanging around. And to be honest, often in the spiritual warfare mindset that you come from some Christian circles, it is about gaining ground and claiming things and winning battles. So why is Paul, here in Ephesians, so keen on us standing? I wonder if it's this. Remember in the letter, he has reconciled us. He has removed the dividing wall of hostility. We are reunited under Jesus around the cross. And so as the devil seeks to unpick all that he's achieved, then we need to stand in what we have. One writer has put it like this. He says, Paul is speaking about a struggle in which the aim is to stand. For the letter tells me that the gospel has picked you and me up if we're Christians and the gospel has put us into the most wonderful position we could ever be right at the heart of God's purposes. My battle is not to get there. My battle is to stay there. To stand where God's gospel has put me. So we are to be those who stand. We're standers. And so I guess your question is, well, how do I stand? What does that mean? How do I stand in all that Christ has achieved for me? Well, three things. Verse 12, we shall see that we need to know our enemy. Verse 13 to 17, we put on our armour. And verse 18 to 20, we pray. So first one then. We know our enemy. The old saying is that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's true on the battlefield. So if you hear what your enemy is going to do, then you will sort things out so that you can counter them. You will put your defence in place because you know they're going to invade. That's true on your computer. You hear of a virus that's going to come and wipe your hard drive. Well, you make sure your virus checker is updated. Well, so verse 12, Paul is forewarning us helping us think very clearly about a very real enemy. Verse 12, So, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So remember Ephesus, it is a place of power, we've seen. 
a place of magic and the occult, a place of pagan, pagan worship at the temple, a place of commerce and self-sufficiency. There's abundance and richness there. And so Paul says our struggle is not perhaps against those whom we think it is. We see flesh and blood. We see people looming large in our minds. Paul says your struggle is against the powers behind them. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're just visiting or you're not quite sure and all this kind of talk of devil and spiritual realms and that sort of thing and you think we're more nuts than you did ten minutes ago. It's interesting, isn't it? For our modern minds, it can certainly feel very strange. It can feel alien to our kind of thinking. But the Bible never shirks away from the truth of the devil. In fact... He is, I think, player number four as you begin the Bible. God, Adam and Eve, the next character on the stage, is the devil. And he is there right the way through looking to undermine and to destroy God's work, to ruin his plan. He's powerful, but the Bible says he is finite. He is defeated He is a defeated enemy and so he is looking to take down the stuff that he can while he has time because his time is short. I guess, and again, have a listen to this um, from Screwtape. He says, Do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind... Suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. And he continues, he says, while it's great that that humans do not believe in the devil, what is actually better is another way. Screwtape says of, of the need to make materialist magicians, he speaks of, what are they? They're people who are committed to uh, the philosophy of materialism, that is, people see and think that is all there is. And yet at the same time, they're superstitious. On the one hand, they say science can prove everything, they can provide the ultimate answers, and yet, ironically, there they are reading their horoscopes or talking of fate or destiny great description of our world, the way that people think around us. The devil has managed to persuade people that he is not there, and yet he is there at the same time. So they live in fear of him. That is scheming. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil. But most of the time, we're sleepwalking. And so Paul says, because it's a battle, know your enemy, verse 12. Second one, put on your armour. The psalm is interesting in 13 to 17, because as far as I can see, there is nothing new here from what the Christian already has. It is simply remembering the gospel. 
In lots of ways, this armour summarises lots of themes as you read through Ephesians, brought to a head here. It is simply being mindful of all that we have in Christ. And I say simply being mindful, but the reality is we're forgetful. Again, my last one from Screwtape. He says, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. We forget truth. Paul says, remember what you have. Now, it's most likely, as he wrote Ephesians, he was in prison, he was in chains, and so in his mind's eye, I take it, is a Roman soldier, ready for battle. Perhaps even the one he was being guarded by. And what Paul is saying, as he looks this soldier up and down, and as he teaches us, is you have all you need for war. You have no need of anything else. And so in 13 to 17, there are six things that he outlines. He gives us a picture of the kind of defence we need. And so I take it in doing that, the kind of weapons that will be used against us. So what are the six things? The first one, I think, is a knowledge of the truth. And that is there in verse 14, this belt of truth. We have the gospel already. That is what Ephesians has been all about, particularly chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's not theory, it's not doctrinal ticks boxes, it's not information to file away, it is gospel lived out in everyday life. Truth to build your life upon, but the devil is the father of lies, and so he wants you to doubt truth. He's going to lie to you about God. He's going to lie to you about your sin going to lie to you about him it's going to lie to you about reality it's going to lie to you about life he's going to say to you don't take this christian thing too seriously he wants you to wobble in your faith he wants you to as you speak to speak untruth Because do you remember we've seen that lies bring a lack of trust and a lack of trust brings division and division undoes the work of the gospel. So put on your belt of truth. Remember the gospel. Trust the gospel. Second one is righteousness. It's there as the breastplate of righteousness. End of verse 14. That is chest armour that would protect them, their vital organs, their lungs, their hearts. And when those doubts flood in, and they do, and they will, remember your sin has been paid for. You are righteous in Christ. Whatever the devil whispers, it is not one sin too many. It is not one sin too big. You are not too far gone. Paul has already said to us in the letter in chapter 4 that we have a righteousness as Christians, as new people recreated in the likeness of God. It is a gift, it is something that is ours, not something we earn. Something that is ours as we are joined to him by faith, as we are in Christ. In Christ you are righteous. Trust him in that. 
The third is a readiness to share the gospel, verse 15. These, these boots, these feet fitted with willingness to share the gospel that brings peace. Notice the peace word again. We've had that loads, haven't we? Not, not peace and quiet. Something bigger than that. It's war finished. It's peace between us and God. Peace between us and us because of the gospel. It's a peace that we're to guard and to live out, but it's a peace that we're to share as well. This gospel that brings peace. It's a peace that is mobile. It's a peace that moves. And so when we feel apathetic and lazy, and so when we can't be bothered, and when we're too busy and you're here, there and everywhere, Well, so Paul says, have an urgency, have a readiness to tell them the good news about Jesus as somebody told you the good news about Jesus. Put on your boots. Yes, you stand firm, but there's a readiness and an expectation to be sharing this gospel around. The fourth one is the shield of faith, verse 16. This shield of faith that, do you see, it extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I take it these arrows are arrows designed to make us disbelieve, to make us doubt, to make us mistrust God and what he says about us, what he says about himself. That's a daily battle, isn't it? When we feel like perhaps God's just forgotten us, or it's actually just we're just whistling in the dark, just trying to get through life. There's someone we've dreamt up. Maybe when the world looms large in our minds and the cross just feels so small and so weak. Maybe we're feeling condemned and very aware of our sin, of our unworthiness. And we want to earn it back in some way. Gain some forgiveness through our goodness. Well, cling on to your shield of faith. That believes and trusts the promises of God. That relies on his power in difficult times. Or frankly... Whatever it might be for you. So where are you most vulnerable to these arrows? If you were him, how would you take you down? What tactics would you use against yourself? Because you see, nothing else works. The gospel is enough. This is God's plan. There is no other plan. So cling on to that shield of faith that protects you from lies and deception and temptation. Keep trusting the cross even though it looks weak and foolish. Even though people deride it. Item five, 
Helmet of salvation. Helmets, put them on your head. They protect you against decapitation. So maybe our head, our thinking matters. Earlier in the letter, Paul's talking of salvation as something that's already been accomplished. You have salvation, you have forgiveness of sins, you have mercy, you have grace, you have God's kindness. You've been raised with Christ, and yet, as it often does with Paul, salvation has a future element too, something more to come. It looks ahead to full and final salvation. Bodies dealt with, suffering finished, battle over. We no longer live by faith, but we live by sight. So with the helmet of salvation, is he saying, remember what you have now? But remember what's to come. Keep going, keep pressing on. Wear your helmet. And the last one is the sword of the Spirit, which is the gospel. The word of God, the only offensive weapon on the list, verse 17. And that's because it's only the gospel that can bring life. It can bring life to dead in transgressions and sins, people. Life to enslave by the devil, people. Life to under God's wrath, people. It can break in and transform and turn people around. Keep holding on to that truth. Keep going with the word of God. Don't neglect it. As individuals, don't let it just sit there on your bedside table and gather dust. As a church, we mustn't neglect it. Go down blind alleys of fads and fashions and ideas and projects, but rather be founded upon the Word. Remember the Word that equips us for works of service. The Word that grows us in maturity in Him, chapter 4. You conquer lies with truth. And so let the gospel truth into all the nooks and crannies of your life. Shaping your identity, your value, your worth. How you think, how you react, how you respond. Read it. Listen to it. Prioritise it. Feed yourself on it. Be nourished by it. Keep a hold of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's pretty ordinary armour when it comes down to it. Day to day, remember all that you have in Christ. Remember the truth, the salvation, the righteousness. Remember the Word, the Gospel, the Bible. There's no techniques needed for demon destruction here. There's nothing extra. There's no incantations or special spells. It is remembering the gospel in Ephesians 6. Reflecting on that this week, I was reminded of a quote from Andy Robinson that we had on our weekend away back in September. And we thought about it as well in chapter 1, saying that the majority of pastoral issues in the Christian life come down to the fact that we have identity amnesia. Do you remember that? When we forget the gospel, when we forget who we are in Christ, 
then things go wrong because we look elsewhere. And so he's calling us to be strong in the Lord, to stand, to remember who you are, to remember the gospel, to put on your armour each day as you remember Christ. And if you're anything like me now, you're thinking, well, Paul, this is it. Let's go for the rousing pep talk. Let's get emotional. Let's use alliteration. Let's be heartwarming. This is gladiator, brave heart speech. This is how we finish. And he gets to 18 to 20, and he says to us, pray. Pray. I'm going to read the verses again, and I'm, I'm going to want you to multitask as I read it. I want you to look out for three things as we read it. The first one is how many times he says we should pray. The second is who we're praying for. And the third is what should we be praying for. So how many times, who are we praying for, and what kind of stuff. Okay? Verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So how many times did he say pray? Four, thank you. Any more? Four is good. Who are we praying for? Verse 18, at the end there we're praying for all the Lord's people. And we're praying in verse 19 to 20 for Paul. And what kind of stuff? Well, I take it in verse 18, we're praying about the battle he's just mentioned, the kind of daily living stuff. And then for Paul in 19 and 20, we're praying for his words, for a fearlessness as he explains this truth. So more closely then, verse 18, he to pray for all the Lord's people in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? And how are we to pray all kinds of prayers all the time? Well, the biblical pattern of prayer, as far as I can see from the New Testament, is almost always to the Father, by the Son, in the Spirit. It's a similar kind of pattern that we saw in chapter 1, do you remember? God the Father who selects, the Son who secures, the Holy Spirit who seals. Which means that the prayer in the Spirit that God talks of here, that Paul talks of here, is not a special category of prayer, it is simply praying in line with God's will. It's an awareness that we're in a spiritual battle. It's being awake praying that God would help us. We've got our spiritual armour on, we have the gospel, we, we've got the sword of the spirit in our hands, and so we pray. And not just at certain times. This is striking, isn't it? We're to pray all the time. Why is that? Because we're never not in the battle. The devil is a schemer. As soon as you think you're okay, 
As soon as you think, wow, battle's all right, he's not particularly real. As soon as you think you'll be all right, as soon as you think, well, it's not a problem at the moment, thanks very much for asking, and we don't bother praying, then we slip. It redefines our prayer life, doesn't it? We ask people, how's your prayer life? And we all look a bit awkward. Actually, prayer life is a helpful phrase. Because we spend all our life praying. It's ongoing. It's all the time. It's, perhaps it's praying for that awareness of God, the awareness of the reality of the situation. Eyes open. Wide awake prayer. We pray all the time because we're never not in a battle. And it's praying for all the Lord's people. I take it it's praying for all the Lord's people because there isn't a special category of people for whom this is not an issue. It's still an issue for the super-holy Christian. It's still an issue for the mature Christian. It's still an issue for, for missionaries, for ministers for deacons, for elders. There isn't a level that you reach when suddenly it stops being an issue. Paul the Apostle knew his weakness, his fragility, his need of prayer. And so he asks them to pray for him. The two things particularly that he talks of in 19 to 20, did you see it? There's courage and there's clarity. Courage twice, he says, that I might fearlessly make known the gospel. It's a kind of perverse encouragement to me that Paul asks that he might be fearless. Because I assume he's got that one nailed already. And if Paul says he struggles and he needs their prayer, then that makes me feel a bit less able to use that as an excuse. Once you know everybody finds it hard, then let's pray for fearlessness for one another. Let's pray for courage. And let's pray too for clarity. So verse 19, he prays that words may be given him when he speaks. He prays that he might declare it as he should in verse 20. It's all very well being fearless. If you're full of courage but nobody understands you, then it's a waste of time. So he longs for both. He longs for courage and for clarity. So let's pray for each other as we head into the various situations that the Lord has for us this week. Opportunities, conversations, friendships. Let's pray for a courage and a clarity like Paul that we may speak of Jesus. you here back in December, you might remember, um, we, we talked about our desire as a church this year, not to simply, in the midst of transition and uncertainty, kind of weather the storm, but rather in our weakness, among other things, to step out. Do you remember we talked about being a church that speaks to people about God? We said maybe making space in our weeks for friendships, 
for being involved in other people's lives, not just to hang around with Christians all the time, doing what we love, but taking Jesus with us. Do you remember that? So as I ask myself the same question, I say, how's that going for you? Is it something that's still on your agenda? Is it something that's still there? Because we get busy and it gets nudged aside and then we're into Christmas. It's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. But friends, remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then 21 to 24, he just cracks on and finishes the letter. No change in pace, the reality of the devil, 6, 10 to 20, and then he just finishes off the letter with some greetings for people. This is real. So let's seek to wake up, to be aware of the battle, to stand firm in the battle clothed in the gospel, to pray in the spirit for courage and clarity that we might share this gospel that brings life to those around us. Before we pray to finish, I'm going to give you just a moment, perhaps a minute or two, to have a look down at the passage. I'm aware of the, the thing we started on from Mark 4, that Satan loves to just grab the seed before it grows. So just have a moment. There's something perhaps tangible for you or something to, to act upon from this passage. Perhaps something that's new or different. But let's not forget what is true. Time of quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer.